Welcome to the second Safe Lives Spotlight. I'm Natalie, and this is the second podcast in our series on domestic abuse and disabled people. Today, I've come to speak to Dr. Michelle McCarthy, a reader in learning disabilities at the University of Kent in Canterbury. Michelle has a background in social work and has worked with people with learning disabilities in a variety of residential and field settings. She has a particular interest in working with women with learning disabilities on issues such as relationships and sexual health and has recently finished a research project looking at domestic abuse and women with learning disabilities. Hello Michelle. Hello. Um, so can you tell us about your research? Yep. Uh, some colleagues and I a couple of years ago did a research project looking at the domestic violence experiences of women with learning disabilities. So we interviewed a group of women who had experience of domestic violence in the, in the recent years and we interviewed 15 women with learning disabilities. Now that's a relatively small sample number, but in fact um, our study was three times as big as any other study that has been done on, on, in this area because usually the research takes a very small sample, if you like. So we were asking the women um, what their experiences had been. Um, all of the women in our study had had left the violent relationship because we we were not given ethical approval to include women who were still in relationships. So, so we, we spoke to them about the relationships, about how those relationships had ended, what kind of help, if any, they had had uh, to escape from those relationships, and um, what had been you know useful to them in terms of support from other people. So, can you tell us what did they tell you about their experiences of the abuse? Well. I guess what they told us was that they, the kinds of domestic violence that they had experienced was not fundamentally different to what any other woman would experience. Mm -hmm. So there is nothing about having a learning disability which protects women from domestic violence. So the full scale of physical, sexual, emotional, psychological, financial abuse that yeah. any other woman might experience, these women had also experienced that. Um, one of the things that emerged very strongly from our findings was the very high levels of, of coercive control that, the, that mm. the, the, the men who they were in relationships with were, um, were very controlling about where the women could go, what they could do, what they could wear, who they could see, that, that kind of thing. That. Of women, some had experienced um, very um, severe physical violence, including some potentially life-threatening injuries. Um, others said certainly domestic violence in pregnancy was, was, was common um, for the women. In fact, in our study, all of the women who have been pregnant had experienced domestic violence um, whilst pregnant, um, sexual abuse, and as I say, you know, other kind of psychological and emotional yeah. abuses as well. So, what did they? Um, they were all out of the relationships. How did they? manage that? Were they assisted by specialist services? Um, were they seeking advice from friends or family? How did they get out of those relationships and were there any additional barriers do you think? Yeah, um, I think there were a variety of ways. Um, very few spoke about um, friends and family being a source of support which is, is kind of interesting in itself I suppose. Some had been helped by, uh, for example, social workers or um, other kind of uh, support workers, but many, I think, had just eventually just managed to do it um, by themselves. None of the women in our study 
um, had been to a women's refuge, for example. So, and, and in fact, very few of the women in the study actually really knew what refugees were, and, and you know, that kind of level of information wasn't wasn't there for them. So, that clearly suggests you know that there's an area of work that needs to be yeah. done there in terms of making the the women aware of that. I think in terms of, of additional barriers for for women with learning disabilities as opposed perhaps to some other women is, I mean, they're definitely there. I think, first of all, realising that actually what they're experiencing is abuse and that it's not acceptable and that they, you know, that they they sh shouldn't be expected to, to put up with that. That in itself um, was quite a barrier for them to be able to see that actually life could be better and to kind of aspire to that and also for them just simply to know that actually help is available there are people and there are services that exist to help women in that position and a lot of the women simply really didn't know that and so we're kind of very much left on their own to deal with it yeah so in terms of asking specialist domestic abuse services um, to look at how they enable that access to their service. Is there anything, any practical tips you can give those specialists that would increase a victim's knowledge and awareness about what is out there for them? Yes, I think um, obviously services themselves need to be more accessible to women mm. with a whole range of disabilities yes. and that includes learning disabilities and I think sometimes it's, um, it's easier for um, domestic violence agencies to think in terms of kind of physical accessibility you know if somebody is in a wheelchair or if somebody has a visual impairment it's perhaps more obvious what you have to do to yeah. adapt your building and your service to, to, to make it accessible to those women I think um, for people who are not that familiar with learning disabilities often they're often actually not sure well, what is it then that, that we should be doing um, and there are there are a, a number of things that that they can think of, but obviously one of those is about um, accessible information. That that's almost like the first step, if you like, yeah. because if the women don't know that that support services exist because they've not had that information, well then nothing that you subsequently do is going to make any difference because they've not come to you yet. So you know, first and foremost, I, th I think it's it, you know that's that's an important thing to to address. And is there a way services can could do that relatively easily? Yeah, it's about, I mean, you know, there are lots of examples available of, of making information, um, you know, easier to read, for example. So, um, you know, sometimes people use kind of pictorial information as well, and I think that's that's always useful to, to do that. But also you actually have to adapt the text as well. There's a limit to what you can get across in, in just in pictorial form. So, yeah. you know, there are certain principles about easy read information which are, are, are widely available for people to to look at and it's about kind of you know simplifying what you say but it's also sometimes about how you just kind of lay out the information and make, make it easier for people to to understand so that's relatively easy to do um, it's relatively cheap to do you can just do it you know if you've yeah. got an existing leaflet where you can look at it and you can adapt it yourself to to make that more um, easily um, understandable to both to those with learning disabilities, and that has knock-on effects for other people as, as well. You know, people for whom English is a second language, for example, might pick that leaflet up and it'd be easier for them to understand Absolutely. the kind of yeah. standard version of it. 
Um, and I would say also perhaps consult with people with learning disabilities themselves. So you know, if you yeah. want to adapt your information, well, you know, have a stab at it, and then ask people with learning disabilities. There's lots of you know, there actually are um, proper consultancy services available of people with learning disabilities who will either you know give you advice on on your material or produce it for you. I mean, obviously for a fee because they're they're you know they're providing a a, a service. But um, yeah, I mean the, those kind of things do exist. So that you know they that they'll have a look at it for you if you can't afford that or you know if your service doesn't have those those funds available you can do that on a, on a more informal basis so is there anything michelle you can tell me about the perpetrators yes i mean we didn't i suppose it's important to say we didn't speak to any perpetrators ourselves for this research so the information that we have about them came from the women themselves and also sometimes from the people who were supporting the women to take part in our in our research but um, obviously there were a variety of different kinds of men they were and there were no women in, in same-sex relationships who um, took part in our research generally speaking the men um, did not have learning disabilities themselves um, but they often did have mental health problems um, and often would have drug or alcohol problems um, generally speaking they were men who didn't work and that that is significant for a number of reasons, really, not because men who don't work are any more likely to be violent than men who do work, but I mean, it, but it, it was significant because that meant that often there was very little money in the house, and that was an additional stress um, uh, within the relationship. And also because then that meant that they spent lots of time at home, and so the women never really got any respite from the abuse that was happening because you know they weren't going out to work for eight hours a day; they were there together really for, for most of the time and um, so that was difficult and they were men who um, sometimes had kind of housing issues or kind of were homeless and they would move in with the woman very early into the relationship in much earlier than the woman would have would have wanted um, and that kind of cemented the relationship really in, in a way that perhaps it was at too early a stage for that and, and then once he was there it was very hard to get to get him out and to, to escape from that. So, um, as I say, so, so in general, not generally men with learning disabilities, but men often who kind of were troubled in, in other ways, if you like. So do you feel they targeted the victims in your study because of their learning disabilities? I, I think it's hard to escape that conclusion. Yeah, because they didn't, yeah, there, there was, I mean, I think not all of them. I mean, a couple of the women um, were married and you know it's it's probable that at the beginning of that relationship you know there was an element of love and, of, and affection between the two parties you would hope mm -hmm. at least um, but that did not come out strongly uh, you know, from what the, the women said that um, you know it was a relationships that were were good strong solid relationships which somehow went bad mm -hmm. it never really seemed to be like that it was for not not all of them but for for a number of them a relationship of convenience, I think, on the part of the perpetrators, and yeah, an element of targeting. They didn't seem to kind of, you know, like the women very much, mm. but it was, you know, it was someone to be with and, and somewhere to stay. I think was. What was do important. the survivors tell you they want from services, whether that's domestic abuse services or services um, such as adult social care? What do they want or need? 
I think there's a number of things. I think, and it, it's helpful perhaps to think about, you know, what might they need after domestic violence has already happened to them. But I, I also would think, you know, we could take some steps backwards and think about kind of preventative work, which is actually really useful. What do women with learning disabilities need perhaps before they enter into adult intimate relationships? And I would say that they need kind of good sex education and relationship education at, at an early stage so that they can be helped to think about what do healthy relationships look like, what kind of expectations might you have in relationships, um, because sometimes people are not, not clear about that. I think you know, assertiveness training and help with self-esteem, that kind of thing, at an early stage is yeah. going to be very useful so that they don't find themselves in a position where they're accepting all kinds of abuse from other people um, and not kind of asserting them themselves. In terms of what might they need, you know, if and, if and when it does happen, I think other women to talk to is extremely useful. So whether that's kind of informally or a women's support group, something like that, but a, a forum in which they can share experiences and help each other and get advice from each other and understand that they are not the only person that this is happening to, that actually this is a common life experience and that actually there are things that, that can be done about it. I think that would be good. Um, often advocacy, access to kind of specialist advocacy services, somebody to help them think through what's going on, what steps, what, what their options are and what steps they might be able to take uh, is very useful. Um, I've mentioned already accessible information, but that's, that's always there. Mm. Um, the other thing that the, the women in our study spoke about, and, uh, and um, I think it is a, a common issue, is they want support to be able to keep their children because their experiences of that if kind of domestic violence is kind of known about and and um, and they have children then their fear is that their children will be removed from them because their the children might be a danger and obviously if that's their fear then then they won't want to report it to anybody else because they won't want that to be a consequence um, obviously, they like other women might need emergency accommodation and, and mm -hmm. you know refuges actually somewhere to to go. Um, most of the women in our study, as I say, hadn't been to refu refuges, but what they wanted was help to stay safely in their own home and not to have to leave their own home, which is perfectly understandable. Yeah. Um, but that often wasn't available. That their their route out of the the violent relationship meant they had to leave their own home, and they sometimes it took women quite a long time to come to that acceptance and that's I mean that that would be true I guess of you know of the majority of people nobody would want to do that but I think particularly for women with learning disabilities who might have had to struggle really hard to live independently and to have a place of their own to have achieved that and then to have someone move in with you who is violent and then the only kind of solution to that is for you to have to leave what is actually your flat and your house and he gets to stay. I mean, that's you know, it's kind of outrageously unfair, apart from anything else. And 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 often the women didn't want to do that, and, was, and you know, I can totally understand that. But then that kind of trapped them in that violent relationship sometimes for a long time. You mentioned earlier about um, victims not always 
identifying themselves as a victim of abuse mm. and not knowing about services and also not necessarily being supported by friends and family. Is that because they had been in abusive relationships previously? Had they been um, victims of child abuse, for example, within their own families? And Well, it's not as a result of that, but it's, it, that was in their experience. So yeah. multiple victimisation, I suppose. Well, I mean, certainly for some of them, that was the case. And some of them had, um, when they were children, um, had seen domestic violence in, in their own families. So they'd okay. seen their own mothers experience domestic violence and, and to some extent had grown up with that. Um, and one or two had had previous relationships which had been a, a, abusive as well, although not, not everyone by, by any means. Um, so yes, for some people that was in their that was in their history. The the fact that they didn't have kind of family and friends necessarily as a source of support around them. I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One is is that quite often um, people with learning disabilities are quite socially isolated anyway. So that's you know yeah. that that's one reason. But certainly it was a very strong feature of the the findings in our research that the, the perpetrators, if you like, systematically isolated the women, that they went out of their way to make sure that the women actually lost contact with family and friends. And they did that through a whole number of, of different ways, um, from being horrible to people, from being abusive to people around them, from accusing them of, of various things, till people just stopped, stopped visiting and stopped yeah. coming, staying in contact. And then the, they would prevent the woman from going out and seeing family and friends herself, so that she became very isolated. And really, there wasn't, there weren't very many people yeah. that she could turn to. And very dependent, I suppose, on that yeah. source of seeming support from a perpetrator and company mm. and friendship or seeming friendship. Um, yeah, yeah, to some extent, for sure. Okay, so um, finally, then, if you could give any advice to. Um, services about their response to victims of domestic abuse who have learning disabilities. Is there anything you could add that would um, help them help those victims? Yeah, I think there are a couple of things to think about. Um, one is that um, what we women with learning disabilities need to be seen as, as women first and foremost and often you get this um, thing that, that's referred to as diagnostic overshadowing, which, which is where the disability is seen as the most important thing about that person. That's the characteristic that, that people see first and that people respond to first, and not their gender. So, and I, I think that's really un, unhelpful. I mean, obviously both things are, are important, um, but what, what we want really is, is from, you know, there's, there's almost kind of like two two different worlds of services, aren't there? There's the domestic violence world, if you like, and then there's the learning disability service world. And both of those have their own strengths. So domestic violence services are very good at, obviously, at understanding domestic violence and, and gender issues, but don't tend to know very much about learning disability issues. And learning disability services, obviously, are good at the learning disability stuff, but they need to learn much more about um, about gender and about the realities of life for some women with learning disabilities and the kinds of experiences they might have and understanding the dynamics of domestic violence. So both both services need to learn from each other, mm -hmm. ideally, 
um, and ideally work together would be great. <laughs> but I think, I mean, particularly in learning disability services, I think we, you know, people need to just kind of think about domestic violence differently and conceptualise it differently because certainly what came up quite strongly from our research was that when women made, made people aware that that's what they were experiencing, it was treated very much as, a, as an individual problem for that individual woman and it wasn't seen as a widespread social problem, which it is and always has been historically and is cross-culturally. Nobody seemed to be thinking in those terms, it was like that particular person is experiencing that, let's deal with that and let's respond to that issue. And I think that often, and that meant the women sometimes were given responses which were either very simplistic or really not helpful at mm. all. And you know, a couple of examples of, of that where a woman was, um, I think she, she had left her boyfriend who had been violent and he was continually sending her text messages all the time, abusive messages. Um, and she reported that to the police who just told her to get a new phone and a new number. And it's like, well, yeah, that's that's okay, but that's surely not the only answer. <laughs> you know, there's more really that could have been done with that, and that, but that, you know, that just that individual response. Another woman said, you know, she had made her care manager aware of what was happening in the relationship, and the response was, was well, it's your choice to be in that relationship. Wow. If you don't, you know, if you don't like it, you you could leave, and you know, not in a nasty way, but in a way that's just like. Everything is put back onto the individual woman. It's it's you now that has to find the solution yeah. to this, and I just think that's very unhelpful. The other thing that I think, for me, emerged quite strongly from this research is that we, you know, in terms of how we think about domestic violence for for women with learning disabilities, is that we we don't seem to be making links with other similar crimes to that. Um, that happen against people with learning disabilities. I'm thinking about disability hate crime, and in particular, the phenomenon that's called mate crime, yes. which is where um, you know somebody will befriend a person with learning disabilities, and and you know gradually might you know move into their house and start to take over you know that kind of thing. Well, that was a very strong pattern in our research that these often they were women with mild learning disabilities who were living independently, who would meet somebody. Um, who would meet a man and very very quickly he would be he, he would have moved in to her flat and the women felt kind of railroaded into that in a number of ways yeah. either because they were just as they themselves said i was i was a bit too nice i was a bit you know i was kind of easily led i was manipulated into it but very quickly he'd have his foot in the door his feet under the table and he'd be ruling the roost saying what could, you know it was he'd yeah. kind of taken over and that has very, very strong parallels with, with mate crime and how that works. And yet, we don't kind of see them as part of the same phenomenon. They, they're, yeah. kind of, they're separate mm. somehow, and they're treated differently and understood differently. And I, I just don't think that's helpful. I think we should be kind of taking a broader look yeah. at what's happening to people rather than just seeing it in a kind of very blinkered way. Yeah. What's happening to individual people as opposed to what's happening a bit more broadly. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, Michelle, for taking the time to talk to us. Um, is there anything else you would like to say? Actually, there probably is one other thing I, I would want to say in terms of, you know, how... It perhaps it goes back to 
and the issue of prevention i was saying because i think you know what 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 can what can support workers do for women with learning disabilities i suppose one thing that needs to happen is that women with learning disabilities just need i know you know it sounds very idealistic but they actually need better lives they need jobs they need nicer places to live they need social activities they need to be kind of connected in society in many more ways because what happens for for many people is the only thing of value in their lives is their relationship yeah because they don't they don't have m many of the things that many of the rest of us take for granted and if that's the only thing that's valuable in your life well you're probably not going to want to let it go even if it is really yeah rubbish and abusive because then you're really left with nothing because you've got no job and maybe your children have already been taken into care and you've got no money and you live in a horrible place and that really that relationship is the only thing of value and that gives you status in society as an adult woman that you're in a relationship with someone yeah. and if that goes blimey there's not much left so obviously it's kind of you know, it's a very very big thing to think about but you know improving women's lives in lots of other ways that are not anything to do with the relationship, I think it's in itself would be you know a really important thing that that needs to happen because then women can get that kind of value and their self esteem can come from lots of other things and yeah. not just from from that relationship. But um, I realise as I say that that of course you know services are being cut left, right, and centre, and actually the the kinds of of opportunities that are available to to vulnerable people like this are actually reducing rather than increasing and that's, that's, that's pretty sad. Huge thanks to Michelle McCarthy for sharing her research and her insights with us. Transcriptions for this podcast are available in the description box. For more on disabled people and domestic abuse, visit our website at www.safelives.org.uk.